Thomas Nelson Word presents Jesus Among Other Gods by Ravi Zacharias, narrated by the author. In a world with so many religions, why Jesus? Apologetic scholar and popular speaker Ravi Zacharias examines that question in this Word audio presentation of his book, Jesus Among Other Gods. We're living in a time when sensitivities are at the surface, often vented with cutting words. Philosophically, you can believe anything so long as you do not claim it to be true. Morally, you can practice anything so long as you do not claim that it is a better way. Religiously, you can hold to anything so long as you do not bring Jesus Christ into it. If a spiritual idea is Eastern, it is granted critical immunity. If Western, it is thoroughly criticized. Thus, a journalist can walk into a church and mock its carryings on, but he or she dare not do the same if the ceremony is from the Eastern fold. Such is the mood at the end of the 20th century. A mood can be a dangerous state of mind, because it can crush reason under the weight of feeling. But that is precisely what I believe postmodernism best represents, a mood. How does one in a mood such as this communicate the message of Jesus Christ in which absoluteness and truth are not only assumed, but sustained? Some proponents of other religious faiths talk about the myth of Christian uniqueness. Others have demanded that propagation of one's faith is wrong and that, quote, conversion should be banned. Such a mood, though, brings a tyranny all its own. The reality is that if religion is to be treated with intellectual respect, then it must stand the test of truth regardless of the mood of the day. This book on tape is a defense of the uniqueness of the Christian message. The route I have followed is to present a clear difference between Jesus and any other claimant to divinity or prophetic status. I have taken several questions that Jesus answered in a way that none other would have answered. An opponent may disagree with his answers, but when those answers are all added up, antagonists will not be able to challenge his uniqueness. My honest prayer is that as you listen, you will make your judgment of the Christian message based on truth, not on the mood of our time. Moods change. Truth does not. Climbing a Massive Wall the purpose of this book on tape is to lay out for you why I firmly believe Jesus Christ be who he claimed to be, the Son of the living God, the one who came to seek and to save a lost humanity. At a time in our cultural history when the West is looking more like the East and the East is covertly trying to emulate the West, this is much needed. Religions are making a revival, but often as a hybrid of Western marketing techniques and Eastern mythology a devastating combination of seduction through media and mysticism. The first casualty in such a mix is truth and, consequently, the person of God. Yet, if the human spirit is to survive and every legitimate discipline to find fruitful expression, truth cannot be sacrificed at the altar of a pretended tolerance. All religions, plainly and simply, cannot be true. Some beliefs are false, and we know them to be false. So it does no good to put a halo on the notion of tolerance as if everything could be equally true. To deem all beliefs equally true is sheer nonsense for the simple reason 
that to deny that statement would also then be true. But if the denial of the statement is also true, then all religions are not true. In the real-life struggles between right and wrong, justice and injustice, life and death, we all realize that truth does matter. Jesus Christ repeatedly talked about the supreme value of truth. While his life has been scrutinized more than any others, it is remarkable that even skeptics have granted and recognized his unparalleled life and impact. Here, for example, is an opinion from a highly respected scholar, the famed historian W.E.H. Leckie. The character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive in its practice, and has exerted so deep an influence that it may truly be said that the simple record of three years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. Historians, poets, philosophers, and a host of others have regarded him as the centerpiece of history. He himself made a statement that was very dramatic and daring when he said to the Apostle Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14 and verse 6. Every word of that statement challenges the fundamental beliefs of the Indian culture from which I come, and in reality, actually stands against an entire world today. Just look at the implicit claims in that statement. First and foremost, he asserted that there is only one way to God. That shocks postmodern moods and mindsets. Hinduism and Baha'ism have long challenged the concept of a single way to God. The Hindu religion with its multifaceted belief system vociferously attacks such exclusivity. Jesus also unequivocally stated that God is the author of life and that meaning in life lies in coming to him. This assertion would be categorically denied by Buddhism, which is a non-theistic if not atheistic religion. Jesus revealed himself as the Son of God who led the way to the Father. Islam considers that claim to be blasphemous. How can God have a son? Jesus claimed that we can personally know God and the absolute nature of his truth. Agnostics deny that possibility. One can go down the line and see that every claim that Jesus made of himself challenged my culture's most basic assumptions about life and meaning. It is important to remember, of course, that these basic religions within the Indian framework are also not in concert with each other. Buddha was a Hindu before he rejected some of Hinduism's fundamental doctrines and conceived in their place the Buddhist way. Islam radically differs from Hinduism. Ironically, it was that same Apostle Thomas to whom Jesus spoke these words who took the exclusive claims of Christ to India and paid for the gospel message with his life. Was Jesus who he claimed to be? Is a Christian claim to uniqueness a myth? Can one study the life of Christ and demonstrate conclusively that he was and is the way, the truth, and the life? That is the question I propose to answer in this book on tape. I believe there is overwhelming evidence to support Jesus' claims. I begin with my personal story, only to put into context how my own journey began and how I arrived at the conclusion that Jesus is who he said he is. The Jesus I know and love today I encountered at the age of 17, but his name and his tug in my life mean infinitely more now 
than they did when I first surrendered my life to him. I came to him because I did not know which way to turn. I have remained with him because there is no other way I wish to turn. I came to him longing for something I did not have. I remain with him because I have something I will not trade. I came to him as a stranger. I remain with him in the most intimate of friendships. I came to him unsure about the future. I remain with him certain about my destiny. I came amid the thunderous cries of a culture that has 330 million deities. I remain with him knowing that truth cannot be all-inclusive. Truth, by definition, excludes. You hear it a thousand times and more growing up in the East. We all come through different routes and end up in the same place. But I say to you, God is not a place or an experience or a feeling. Pluralistic cultures are beguiled by the cosmetically courteous idea that sincerity or privilege of birth is all that counts and that truth is subject to the beholder. In no other discipline of life can one be so naive as to claim inherited belief or insistent belief as the sole determiner of truth. Why then do we make the catastrophic error of thinking that all religions are right and that it does not matter whether the claims they make are objectively true? All religions are not the same. All religions do not point to God. All religions do not say that all religions are the same. At the heart of every religion is an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining who God is or is not and accordingly of defining life's purpose. Anyone who claims that all religions are the same betrays not only an ignorance of all religions, but a caricatured view of even the best-known ones. Every religion at its core is exclusive. But the concept of many ways was absorbed subliminally in my life as a youngster. I was conditioned into that way of thinking before I found out its smuggled prejudices. It took years to find out that the cry for openness is never what it purports to be. What the person means by saying, you must be open to everything, is really, you must be open to everything that I am open to, and anything that I disagree with, you must disagree with too. Indian culture has that veneer of openness, but it is highly critical of anything that hints at a challenge to it. It is no accident that within that so-called tolerant culture was birthed the caste system. All-inclusive philosophies can only come at the cost of truth, and no religion denies its core beliefs. Within such systemic relativism, one tends to drift and float with the cultural tide and give no thought to the unforgiving nature of reality. That is how life is lived out in pantheistic cultures. No doubt, there is a wealth of thought that has built an impressive culture for more than one billion people, a culture that has defied economic privation, political turmoil, and religious hostilities, existing in the words of its people as Mother India. One does not have the advantage of choosing where one is born, yet the words of the poet, breeds there a man with soul so dead, who never to himself has said, this is my own, my native land, ring-wrenchingly true. In that cultural air, my life, my language, and my values were shaped and tested. I will ever be grateful for that privilege and for the treasured gifts it bestowed on me. The songs, the language, and the dreams it lodged in me, I hope I never outlive. But a search for the one true God in a land full of gods 
is a very daunting task. Religion has a checkered history and some of it is reprehensible. An inheritor of the complexity of this culture, I grew up with walls of quiet desperation gradually building within me that moved me moment by moment to a point of personal crisis. I have heard it said that every weakness in a capable person is generally a strength abused. That same applies to culture. In the context of my upbringing, the abusers of those strengths of culture confirmed that adage. When I was in school, every student's grades and position in the class were printed in the leading newspapers for all to see. Success or failure were reasons for public pride or shame. One of my closest friends toyed with the idea of suicide after his high school exams because he did not stand first in the entire city of New Delhi. Another one of my classmates in college actually burned himself to death because he did not make the grade. Such distortion that has hurt so many still pervades many cultures. It is plainly wrong, but it is cherished with a passion. This combination of the standard at home and the standard in society became a volatile mix in my life. I showed early signs that I would not be the boast of a powerful dad. This was not deliberate. It was just either the lack of capacity or capacity in search of a purpose. Life crept along while the long arm of cultural pressure was gradually creeping up on me, and I knew I would not pass the test. Every morning we would awaken to men and women standing outside our home, waiting for just one minute of my father's time. He held the keys to numerous jobs and contacts. With folded hands, they would plead for a chance at a job. On his way to the car, he would nod to them as if to say, leave it with me. And the truth is that many were helped from his connections. Scores of people revered his name because of such power. Could I not also have benefited someday from his influence? But too much lurked behind the scenes to offer a simplistic explanation. In addition, my father had a foreboding side. With his enormous position in life, he battled a volatile temper. My lack of focus made it a situation awaiting crisis. That combination was to bring him and me into a relationship that I now regret. I am ever grateful to God that it did not end the way it began. As committed as he was to a brilliant career for me, I was just as desirous of living for the sports field, a love of my life in which he had no interest. He had a point. Every boy growing up wanted to become a cricketer and play for India, just as every youngster in New York wants to play for the Yankees. But I did show some promise. I played for many teams at my college, cricket, hockey, tennis, and table tennis. Yet never once did my dad come to see me play, even in any big game. We were marching to different drumbeats. Throughout these years, I have never lost respect for him. To this day, I believe my father was a good man. Indeed, even a great man, but he did not know how to get close to a hurting, struggling child. I, for my part, pondered within and lived with my own private pain. Over the years, I have come to believe that these things matter more than ordinary people may realize, but perhaps less than extremists would lead us to believe. Somehow, we learn to cope, except that it places us near the edge of self-rejection and renders us more vulnerable when dreams are shattered. Probably the most wrenching words I ever heard my father say to me were, you will never make anything of your life. And frankly, it seemed he was right. He was trying only to jolt me into reality. My mother's comfort could only carry me so far. In that sense, 
that fateful day when I cycled home was a critical point at which we ought to have sat down and talked, but I suppose the freedom to talk does not emerge in a vacuum. The moment of opportunity is built on hours of preparation. Somewhere in the midst of all this turmoil, the hound of heaven was on my trail. His footprints are everywhere as I look over my shoulder now. He was indeed nearer than I thought. I can see now in hindsight the trail that is evident, even in the grimmest moments. When you live in a small two-bedroom home with four siblings and two parents, you cannot run for a hiding place, yet it is utterly amazing how one can hide within oneself. But the work of God had long begun. From out of the blue, one day my sister was invited to a youth event that would feature music and a speaker. She invited me to attend this meeting with her. On this occasion, the visiting speaker was a man, though a total stranger to me, was a well-respected Christian leader internationally. My memory of it is too blurred to recall exactly all that transpired. But this I know. He spoke on a text that is probably the best-known text in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3 and verse 16. Even more powerful than what he said was his demeanor, and his heart came through in his words. There was both tenderness and power. Unaccustomed to being at such an event, I found myself walking conspicuously alone to the front at his invitation to trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Although I'd been raised in a church, I held out such little hope that its message had anything to do with life that I grasped only a portion of what he said. None of these things meant anything to me. To this vocabulary, I was a stranger. I only knew that my life was wrong and that I needed somebody to make it right. I wanted new hungers, new longings, new disciplines, and new loves. I knew God had to matter. I just did not know how to find him. I left that night with a hint in my mind that there was something so right about the message, even though I had not got it all together. My confusion notwithstanding, a very important context was put into place. As the weeks went by, I continued to attend all of the popular Hindu festivals and to enjoy watching dramatic presentations of their mythology. I had an ardent Hindu friend who worked very hard at getting me to embrace the Hindu view of life. Then a very significant event took place. I was cycling past a cremation site and stopped to ask the Hindu priest where that person, whose body was nothing more than a pile of ashes, was now. Young man, he said, that is a question you'll be asking all your life and you will never find a certain answer. If that is the best a priest can do, I thought, what hope is there for a novice like me? As the months went by without the further explanation that I needed, the continued loss of meaning led me to a tragic moment. My decision was firm, but calm. A quiet exit would save my family and me any further failure. I put my plan into action. As a result, I found myself on a hospital bed, having been rushed there in the throes of an attempted suicide. In that hospital room, a Bible was brought to me, and in the desolation of my condition, a passage of Scripture was read to me. The speaker's message from that youth event still rang in my ears. I needed it as a base on which to build. He had preached from the third chapter of the gospel according to John about God's love. Now in the hospital, 
I was being read the 14th chapter of John about God's purpose. The words in that chapter were spoken to the Apostle Thomas, who, as I said, had come to India. His memorial exists to this day just a few miles away from where I was born. Remember that Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. But my attention was captured by a few words further along when Jesus said to his disciples, Because I live, you shall live also. Again, I was not sure of all that it meant. I knew that it meant more than just biological life, piecing together God's love in Christ, the way that was provided because of Christ, and the promise of life through him. On that hospital bed, I made my commitment to give my life and my pursuits into his hands. The struggles of my relationships, my origin and my destiny were all addressed in that conversation Jesus had with his disciples 2,000 years ago. My commitment stands now as the most wonderful transaction I ever made. I turned my life completely over to Jesus Christ. I walked out of that hospital room a new man. The Lord Christ had entered in. The transformation was as dramatic as I could have ever imagined. There is no other way to describe it. From then on, my longings, my hopes, my dreams, and my every effort has been to live for him who rescued me, to study for him who gave me this mind, to serve him who fashioned my will, and to speak for him who gave me a voice. The passion for learning, the recognition of the value of study, and the need to understand great thinkers and their thoughts all were gradually put into their legitimate place. Our intellect is not intended to be an end in itself, but only a means to the very mind of God. Books, which were once a curse, became a gold mine. The Hebrews had a motif by which they symbolized the ideal, every man under his own fig tree. If the Lord were to allow me a metaphor today, it would be every man in his own library. The very pursuits that at one time brought so much inner heartache are now for me the transcending delight of my heart. Little did I know the long academic journey that lay ahead of me. I have loved it. So much has transpired since that day that it would take volumes to fill. God has given me the privilege of speaking for him on every continent and in dozens of cities, presenting a defense of the Christian faith in some of the finest institutions of the world. I am privileged beyond measure. I am as much at home in New Delhi as I am in Atlanta or Toronto. I love the peoples of this world, each with their accents and cuisines and idiosyncrasies. I have truly enjoyed the challenge and privilege that being a Christian apologist has brought my way. Christian apologetics is the task of presenting a defense of the person and the message of Jesus Christ. Over the years, I have become more convinced than ever that he is exactly who he claimed to be, God incarnate who came to give us life to the fullest and to point us to the beauty and freedom of truth. The thrill of seeing thousands of lives transformed is a thrill I cannot deny. Almost 30 years to the day after my surrender to Christ, my wife and I were visiting India and decided to visit my grandmother's grave. I had only vague recollections of her funeral, the first funeral I had ever attended. I had a challenge trying to tell the cemetery manager the year of her death. We finally arrived at the year, as I recalled, I was probably nine or ten when it might have happened. After thumbing through old registers that were bigger than his desk, we eventually found her name. 
with the help of a gardener, we walked through the accumulated weeds and dirt and rubble in the cemetery until we found the large slab of stone marking her grave. No one had visited her grave for almost 30 years with his little bucket of water and a small brush the gardener cleared off the caked-on dirt, and to our utter surprise, under her name, a verse gradually appeared. My wife clasped my hand and said, Look at the verse. It read, Because I live, you shall live also. As I said, he was on my trail long before I knew it. As the years have gone by, we have made a study of when the gospel first made inroads into our family. On both my mother's and my father's side, five and six generations ago, the first believers came from the highest caste of the Hindu priesthood. The first to come to the Lord was a woman. She was intrigued by the message brought to her village by missionaries and continued to seek them out in spite of her family's terrible displeasure. But one day... As she was about to leave the missionary compound in order to be home before her family found out where she'd been, the doors of the compound were shut because a cholera epidemic had broken out in the village. She had to remain with the missionaries for several weeks until the time of quarantine was passed. By that time, she had committed a life to the Lord Jesus Christ. The walls of a closed compound were the means of bringing her face to face with her Lord, the Lord Jesus. Only one thing need be added. I was 20 years old when my family moved to Canada. There my mom and dad made their commitments to Christ too. It was a new day for all of us. My dad worked hard at recovering the lost years. In 1974, I was in my 20s, young in the ministry, and I was in Cambodia preaching in some very fearsome circumstances. My father sent a letter with me that he wanted me to read after I left. In it, he reflected upon the days when all seemed lost to me and to him in our relationship. It was a beautiful letter. I read it, lying in my bed in Phnom Penh. One line summed it up when he said, I thank God that he considered our family in calling as one of his servants one of my children. He passed away in 1979 at the age of 67. I do miss him in these wonderful years of ministry. He would have been such an encouragement. God's grace is beyond description. He lifted all of us over the walls of our own imprisonment. So much for the story. Now to the argument. Addressing a Heavenly Home One of the greatest opportunities ever accorded a member of our family took place when Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip visited India in the late 50s. My younger brother, who happened to be seven or eight years old, as the youngest member of the choir of the Delhi Cathedral, was to be formally introduced to the Queen following a Sunday service. He certainly never lacked for counsel on how to prepare for this extraordinary meeting. We ceaselessly coached him repeatedly reminding him to address her as Your Majesty and not Auntie, the latter being a typical way of showing respect in India. The moment came and he passed with flying colors. Unknown to us, his meeting with the Queen was carried on television back in England as part of a news clip prompting calls to the television station to inquire whether that cute little boy was available for adoption. 
Since that day, at any hint of his misbehavior, we siblings have never missed the opportunity to suggest that we should have taken the English up on their offer. Four decades have gone by since that wonderful memory of bowing before the Queen, and he never misses the opportunity to remind us of his greater privilege. Meeting historic figures is not a humdrum experience. Lines are rehearsed, questions are debated, and protocol is practiced long before the event. I have no doubt that the more elaborate the pomp and pageantry accompanying the occasion, the greater the fear of saying or doing something improper. One can only imagine a conversation in the home of Andrew and Simon Peter, the earliest followers of Jesus, when Andrew first informed their family that he believed he had met the long-awaited Messiah. This Redeemer figure was the only hope for a nation languishing under the scourge of successive foreign rulers. Any good Israelite had prayed for the coming of the one who would free his people. A cynic at the evening meal probably choked on his food when the announcement was made by Andrew that he and Simon had just come back from meeting the prophesied deliverer. Many barbs were probably withstood while the brothers insisted they were not out of their minds. They talked to him, spent hours with him, and Andrew had even been given the opportunity to ask him any question he desired. Out of sheer curiosity, one at the table may have muttered, And what perchance did you ask him? I, I asked him where he lived, came the confident reply. Can we not hear it? Silence around the table? That was the best you could do, Andrew, to ask him where he lived? The more I've thought of it, the more I'm convinced that the would-be disciple had sound reasons for asking what he did. His serious investigation of the person of Jesus had begun. Was this truly the Christ, the Anointed One? For nearly 2,000 years, the prophets had told of his coming. Was this that fulfillment? Let's take a hard look at what prompted so basic a question for so monumental a claim. I made the assertion earlier that in the East, the home is the defining cultural indicator. Everything that determines who you are and what your future bodes is tied into your heritage and your social standing, absolutely everything. The first time I returned to speak in India after an 11-year absence, my wife, who is from Canada, witnessed firsthand the esteem conferred by one's family at a reception that was held in our honor in Bombay at which I was to speak. Her astonishment lay in the way I was introduced. The very long and formal introduction I was given was filled with superlatives, yet in its entirety, absolutely nothing was said about me. Instead, it was a lavish description of my father's credentials and accomplishments. It was one of those moments when he wanted to look around and identify this highly decorated individual. Then the last line was tagged on, and this is his son who is to speak to us. My immediate response was to laugh on the inside, but it suddenly dawned on me that I was representing somebody bigger than myself, my father. Because of him, I was given a hearing. I knew I was in the East. An introduction in the West, particularly in North America, is all about what I have or have not accomplished. The credentials are individual, almost as if an individual owes even his beginning to himself. There is little or no mention of my family. But in India, the country of my father's birth, my father's credentials, my mother's birth, and my roots become very important to the audience. You see, in a stratified society, your home address gives the inquirer literally a wealth of information about you. The privilege of birth opens doors. 
It is not at all surprising that Nathaniel's response when he was first told about Jesus was, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That is followed some verses later by, Is this not the son of Joseph, the carpenter? How in the name of reason could the answer to the hopes and dreams of Israel in search of the Messiah come from a city of such low esteem and from a family of such modest professional status? The best way for them to find out whether he could really be who John described him to be was to follow him to his house, to the earthly address of the one who claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus' answer builds the intrigue. He did not give a street name or a house's identification. He simply said, come and see. They went with him to see where he was staying and evidently spent the night there. Andrew returned to tell his brother Simon that they had found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and invited him to come and see also. The next day, Philip, who was also from the same city, invited Nathanael to join them by saying, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. There you have it, the city and the parentage. Nathanael is predictably cynical and is given the same challenge Come and see. As important as his earthly parentage was, his home address was not an earthly one, for in a very real sense he had no beginning. Amid the where and when questions that plague our finitude, there is no such encumbrance for the eternal and infinite one. To lift them beyond the here and now was the task ahead of Jesus when he said to them, Come and see. I suspect there was going to be shock and a need of much explanation. Andrew had a reason for asking the question, and Jesus was offering a journey of thought as his answer. We will take that journey. At this point, put yourself in Andrew's sandals. He'd been invited to the home of the one identified by a recognized prophet as the Lamb of God. Andrew went. What was he anticipating? Would he be disappointed? Nathaniel was one of those who was so committed to the truth that when he was invited to come and meet Jesus, he agreed to go along, probably in the hope of dispelling this deception that had been manufactured in the minds of his friends. But when he came within the range of Jesus' voice, Jesus spoke those carefully chosen words, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. There lay the first surprise. There are few things as disquieting to a person as having his or her inner thoughts laid bare by the words of a stranger. He had come to check out this person, and instead, his own character was revealed for who he really was. How do you know me? demanded Nathaniel, and Jesus replied, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. What did this mean to Nathaniel? Was he pondering something when under the fig tree? Did he have a premonition while under that tree that a life-defining moment was around the corner? Was it a private moment of which he thought no one else was aware? Something in Jesus' disclosure made Nathaniel react impulsively, almost rashly, and he uttered these life-changing words, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That's John 1 and verse 49. I believe Jesus jarred Nathaniel's skepticism by a gentle uncovering of the thoughts and intents of Nathaniel's own heart.
it was at this very point that Andrew's question, where do you live, met a most incredible answer. Jesus had seen Nathanael when Nathanael did not know he was being watched. He identified the determination with which Nathanael pursued reality, which suddenly gained his attention. In one of his Psalms, King David confessed that he could not flee from God's presence, for God knew him in his inmost being. Wherever I go, you are there. See Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10. Nathanael had just realized the same truth. Jesus also knew that Nathanael did not think very much of Nazareth. Recognizing what was in his heart, Jesus challenged his impulsive declaration and said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That is John 1.50. Jesus, in short, said, You're shocked because I revealed you to yourself? Wait until you see the full disclosure of who I am and from whence I come. He took Nathanael from explaining the puzzlement of lesser things to a destination of glorious insights. The description he gave of angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man was not tossed out in a vacuum. It pointed to Jesus' parentage. Peter, Andrew, and Nathaniel all knew the story of the father of their nation, Jacob. That really provided the backdrop for Jesus' answer. You see, while Jacob slept, the Lord came to him in a dream in which he saw a stairway that reached from the earth to heaven. Angels ascended and descended the stairway, and there, above it, stood the Lord, who said, I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. Genesis 28, verse 10. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought to himself, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Verses 16 and 17. Jacob took the stone pillow and left it as a marker in the place he was now going to call Bethel, meaning the house of God. Whether the disciples fully understood it or not, a thundering message was given when Jesus spoke those words to Nathanael. He staked a claim. Were they aware that the Lord who fashioned the heavens and the earth was standing beside them? Angelic hosts attended his abode? Even at that, we struggle to word it precisely. The word abode immediately brings to mind the concepts of residing and of boundaries, neither of which are fitting terms for one who is without beginning and who is omnipresent. Jacob found out that God's presence to bless could transform any location into the house of God. Now the disciples learned the same. They were inclined to judge Jesus by his earthly father, Joseph the carpenter. They were trying to measure his worth by his earthly home, Nazareth. He opened up to them the truth that any earthly setting at which he is present becomes the gateway to heaven. What comfort this must have brought them. But more than that, they rightly inferred from what Jesus said that he had come from his heavenly father, 
who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He took them farther back than their own understanding and lifted them to further heights to show them that the word home was at best only an analogical representation of living with God. The disciples were clearly overwhelmed by that initial impact. They did not fully comprehend all that this encounter was going to mean to them. Their lives would change beyond their wildest dreams so that the day would come when they would leave their own homes to tell the world of Jesus of Nazareth. If you marvel at what I have shown you of yourself, Nathaniel, this is only the beginning of what awaits you when I disclose my glory to you. That, he assured them, would be no anticlimax. The primary and unique indicator here, literally and figuratively, is Jesus' revelation of the realm of his existence. To ask for the where of Jesus' home is the same as asking the when of God's beginning. Such categories are necessary in our finite existence because there was a time when we were not. But God transcends such categories. Jesus' reference to a heavenly dwelling and to the angels ascending and descending in his service point to the fact that he is the Lord of heaven and earth who exists eternally and necessarily. His existence precedes every spatial metaphor. Just as it is impossible for him not to be, so it is not necessary for him to have a place to live. That is precisely what he said to David, who wanted to build a temple where God could dwell in 2 Samuel 7.5. It is more sensible to ask where he has promised to bless us than to ask where his locus of existence is. Is this distinctive of Christ's heavenly dwelling a unique factor in world religions? Indeed it is. Perhaps this unequaled credential of Jesus may be in the minds of Muslim scholars when they attempt to attribute to Muhammad a momentary excursion into heaven. Islam claims that at one point in his life, on one particular night, Muhammad was transported to heaven on a single journey to be given a glimpse of what heaven is like. Regardless of all the confusing arguments over this claim, it does establish that even if the text is taken at face value, what warranted the heavenward journey for a night was that heaven was foreign to Muhammad. And that is the point of difference. With such a unique difference, a skeptic may ask a legitimate question. Is there any evidence that can be adduced to support Jesus' claim of origin? If Jesus had no beginning, then his very birth must explain how he could be born and yet not have a beginning. The virgin birth of Jesus most certainly addresses that. When one is searching for evidence to confirm a startling claim, it is necessary to look for some other source that gives credence to it, even though it would not be in its own best interests to do so. The virgin birth is certainly in that realm, both for those who experienced it and for those inimical to the gospel. For Mary herself to claim such an outlandish conception would have been to not only risk her own life, but also to have put Jesus' life at risk. Though I have quoted this numerous times before, I would like to repeat it here. The popular talk show host Larry King was once asked whom he would choose if he had the choice to interview one person across history. Larry King replied that he would like to interview Jesus Christ and that he would ask him just one question. Are you 
indeed virgin-born. The answer to that question, said King, would explain history for me. Larry King is right. The virgin birth at the very least points to a world unbound by sheer naturalism. The claim is lofty, but think it through even in its original and early context. Jesus' virgin birth was claimed while giving it the clear possibility of being verified along many lines. Of any influential life that you have witnessed or studied, ask yourself how this person would justify a virgin birth and an eternal existence. If such an assertion were being made, this would be a particularly significant question if it had been predicted before this person was born. How do you perfectly fit together prophecy? In fact, hundreds of prophecies and their fulfillment. For Jesus' antagonists, it would have been easy to measure generation by generation whether this claim to be the Messiah could possibly have withstood the scholar's scrutiny and the scripture's test. That is why the genealogies were far more important for the early disciples than the furniture in the house. Apart from Mary and Joseph, consider the testimonies of Zacharias the priest and his wife Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, for whom it would have been natural not to want their son to play second fiddle to a cousin, especially a younger cousin. In a culture rife with power and position, where the home bespoke volumes, shame would not be the path of choice for anyone. Had the virgin birth not been true, to assert its truth was the path of cultural ostracism, if not suicide, for all of them. For Elizabeth to lose her son John to the sword of Herod, and for Mary to be told by the angel that a sword would pierce through her heart would not have been desired by any mother. Mary, Joseph, Zacharias, Elizabeth, John, and then the disciples risked everything for this truth. But even beyond the Hebrew description and the family's claim, possibly the most astounding affirmation of the virgin birth comes from one religion that for centuries has attempted to stand against the Christian gospel, Islam. Even the Quran, written 600 years after Jesus, affirmed his virgin birth. See Surah 19, 19-21. This would serve Islam no self-glorifying purpose. Here then is the man from Nazareth who claimed that his origin was from heaven and his father none other than God himself, a son not born out of physical consummation nor out of a need for communion but the consummate expression of God in the flesh in eternal communion with the father. His birth was not by natural means. This cannot be said of Muhammad, Krishna, or Buddha. Islam, while defending the virgin birth, denies that Jesus was the Son of God. It has therefore never been able to break free from a contradiction of its own making on the matter of Jesus' sonship. Its assertion that it is blasphemous to suggest that God could have a son is based on their notion that sexual union is necessary for a child to be born. And of course that would demean God. So there is a half-truth here, with an ironic twist for a religion whose founding prophet had numerous sexual unions, all they claim instigated by God. But that aside, if they have already granted the virgin birth, then they have acknowledged that God, in his infinite power, can initiate life without sexual union. In the beginning, communion and the power to give life existed in God himself, in his infinite being, relationship was intrinsic 
without the fleshly prerequisite of physical consummation. God, who is spirit, is in fact being in relationship. In Christ, the word became flesh. He alone who dwelt in eternity could consecrate the flesh while differentiating between the inherent power of creation and the bestowed power of procreation even as he transcended the means by which we are bound. But there was a second way in which Jesus proved his absolute and eternal existence. His life has always been regarded as the purest that has ever been lived. On numerous occasions, his antagonists were challenged to bring some contrary proof against him. They were never able to besmirch his pristine life. He challenged his adversaries to lay any charge of sin at his feet. And as we progress in this book, we will see how hard they tried. By contrast, no other individual has ever elicited such accolades. By their own admission, this includes Muhammad, Buddha, and Krishna. Their lives and their struggles are recorded within their own scriptures. Throughout the Muslim world today, the belief is held that all of the prophets were sinless. One marvels at this doctrine, as it was never a view of the prophets presented in the Old Testament, nor is it evident in their own scriptures. The shortcomings of two of the most renowned and respected prophets in Islam, Abraham and Moses, are plainly stated in the Quran. For example, in Surah 28 and verse 16, Moses asked for forgiveness after slaying the Egyptian. In Surah 26 and 82, Abraham asked for forgiveness on the day of judgment. The word used here which Muslims translate as fault rather than sin is the same word that in other contexts they translate clearly as sin. In Surahs 47 and 48, Muhammad himself was to ask for forgiveness for sin, once again translated as faults rather than sin. Again, the word that is used in Surah 47:19 is the same word that is translated as sin in Surah 12:29 where it is applied to Potiphar's wife in her attempted seduction of Joseph. Numerous linguists see this attempt to bypass what is really being said as nothing short of the development of a tradition so that Muhammad's life did not suffer in contrast to Jesus's. There is great diversity in the attempts to explain this away. But what is a fault that needs forgiving? Is it something that ought to be a certain way but is not? Is it a thought that was entertained in error? There is much more that can be said by way of contrast between the lives of Muhammad and Jesus. Muhammad's marriages to 11 wives have been a fascinating subject for Muslim scholars to explain. Whatever else a marriage does or does not prove, it clearly establishes the gradual need to die to oneself so that the two can become one. It is a process of failing and picking up, never one of perfection. But... Even if one were to grant all of the strained explanations for Muhammad's practices, included in which is the embarrassing Quranic description of heaven as wine and women, at Surah 78, 32 and following, which Muslims dismiss as metaphorical, there is never even a hint in the life of Jesus that he was ever driven by sensuality or needed to seek forgiveness for anything. Jesus alone emerges as the spotless one untainted by any error of omission or commission.
It should also be noted that this contrast is not only evident in the way Jesus and Muhammad lived, but also in the way they understood their call. So different is this sense of origin and call that by Islam's own accounts, when Muhammad first claimed to have received revelations, he was confused and not sure what it meant. It was others who told him that this could be the voice of God speaking to him. Jesus, on the other hand, knew exactly who he was and from whence he came. Hinduism is not exempt from this scrutiny either. The playfulness of Krishna and his exploits with the milkmaids in the Bhagavad Gita is frankly an embarrassment to many Hindu scholars. How does Buddha measure up against the standard of personal purity that Jesus set? The very fact that he endured rebirths implies a series of imperfect lives. When he left his home in the palace, turning his back on his wife and his son, it was in search of an answer. He did not start with the answer. His enlightenment was an attainment. Even taken at face value, it was a path to purity, not purity per se. Jesus did not begin his mission by leaving more comfortable surroundings in order to gain enlightenment so that he would find the answer to life's mysteries. That was the origin of Buddhism. He did not come to give a certain group of people ethnic worth so that they too could have an identity as others around them did. Islam had its beginnings for such reasons. He did not give any people a reason to boast of particular privilege because of the age of their culture or the perceived strength of their society's cohesion. Virtually all pantheistic cultures pride themselves on how long they have been in existence. He did not come to affirm a people who boasted in the strength of their military power as the citizens of Rome did in claiming their city to be the eternal city. He did not come to compliment the Greeks for their intellectual prowess. In fact, he did not even come to exalt a culture because it was the recipient of God's moral law, a boast the Hebrews delighted in. His strong and unequivocal claim was that heaven was his dwelling and earth was his footstool. There never was a time when he was not there never will be a time when he will not be. His was a positing of truth from an eternal perspective that uniquely positioned him. The first time I walked through the noisy streets of Bethlehem and endured its smells, I gained a whole new sense of the difference between our Christmas carols glamorizing the sweetness of the little town of Bethlehem and the harsh reality of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Ah! Is it not part of the wonder of God's disclosure of reality that he points to what we live with to show us what true living is meant to be? For the disciples, Jesus' answer to their simple question, where do you live, was to lift them beyond race and culture, beyond wealth and power, beyond time and distance, to make them true citizens of the world, informed by the world to come. He brought them into a dramatically different way of living and thinking from the one to which they were accustomed. He showed them the inclusiveness of his love for the whole world, but implicit in that was the exclusivity of his truth for which they were willing to give their lives. We have reversed Jesus' order. We have made truth relative and culture supreme and have been left with the world in which wickedness reigns. Jesus brought truth to light 
and a different world to his message. In him, my heart finds its true home. Where does Jesus live? Come to Christ and see what it means to live. Taste for the soul. I had just finished a talk before a somewhat hostile audience in India. During the question-answer time, a man abruptly shouted from the back of the tent, Christians are cannibals. Jesus promoted cannibalism. There was absolutely no logical or thematic connection between what I had spoken on and his outburst. His attack only revealed his animosity toward the message of the Christian faith. In my experience, while I never get used to such attacks, I suddenly have learned to anticipate them. The natural inclination is to fight back and to dish out exactly what you're facing, derision for derision, blow for blow, and jibe for jibe. But that is not the answer to an angry questioner. In fact, such a response would only diminish the effectiveness of any answer. The truth is that as I stood there, I had a fairly good idea why this man was insinuating what he did although most of the audience gasped at his assertion. My response was a simple counter. Why do you say that? And what is your source? He had none. He assured me that if I gave him time to run back to his home and check the book in which he had read it, he could sustain his charge. He really did not need to go searching for his book. I could have pretty much named the philosophy he had read and on what page he had made that allegation. Antitheistic philosophers have not spared their scorn in their eagerness to mock this of all of Jesus' sayings. So I knew precisely what this student had in mind. I did offer him the platform to come up and debate the point, but he turned down the offer. Christians are cannibals. What on earth was he talking about? Had he ever read the Bible? Did he ever seek an explanation for what he read, or, or was this the way he wanted it to read? For those who have grown up in a Christian home or who have been raised with an active church life, such a bizarre thought may have never been entertained. But for one who comes to Christ from outside a Christian environment or for the skeptic in search of an argument, a particular passage does leap out of the scriptures with discomforting coarseness. The words are unadorned to impress sensitivities. This is my body. Take and eat. This is my blood drink all of it. These words of Jesus prompted such shock when he spoke them that I cannot completely fault the student for his reaction. Once again, if we are to follow the path to understanding, we must lay hold of the sequence to Jesus' assertions, first the simple, then the profound. His utterance, I believe, offers an element of the gospel that stands in brilliant and unarguably unique contrast to other faiths. When Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant, Matthew 26 and verse 26, he was not speaking in a cultural vacuum to consign his followers to cannibalism. Rather, his words were intended to lift the listeners from their barren, food-dominated existence to the recognition of the supreme hunger of life that could only be filled by different bread. It was in that very journey under Moses that he had first told them that physical bread had limited sustenance. He wanted to meet a greater hunger. 
to a culture with such specific instruction on their spiritual need, to say nothing of their strict dietary laws, only ignorance would manufacture the notion that Jesus was prescribing the consumption of human flesh. Their charge that it was a hard saying betrayed a serious misunderstanding. It is just that response that leaves every human being bereft of life's real meaning. The longer I've pondered these words, the more profoundly I'm moved to realize why our hunger for something transcendent is so rooted in our very being. Yes, even in our physical craving. That may be why we cannot shrug it off, however hard we may try. In our high-paced living, this truth does not sink in with any greater ease than it did in ancient Palestine. With all our ingesting and consumption, Our hungers are still many, and our fulfillments are few. Must we not think about that? Is that not in itself an indicator that our hungers are displaced? Life is not a matter of nutrition alone, but of the greater hunger that is beyond words and food. We do not live so that we can eat, nor do we just eat so that we can live. Life is worth living in and of itself. Life cannot be satisfied when it is lived out as a consuming entity, when it is filled by that which satisfies a hunger that is both physical and spiritual, in a mutuality that sustains both without violation of either. Only then can life be truly fulfilling. Authenticity and continuity are the offspring of the true and the eternal. For the millions who live out their lives day to day with the pursuit of bread dominating their dreams and actions, life as it was meant to be passes them by, and their unsatisfied hungers continue to scream out at them. To realize the full impact of Jesus' patience with his listeners that day, we must remember that this was not the first time the topic of food and hunger had surfaced in a conversation between Jesus and his followers. He had previously tried to bring this point home in an effort to thwart this religion for bread pursuit. The most extended discussion had actually taken place a while before in an event that surprised the disciples, a conversation with a Samaritan woman. See John chapter 4 verses 1 to 42. In that dialogue, Jesus had tried to open up the understanding of their minds toward what made up the form of life and what constituted its substance. In fact, he had a brilliant lead-in, and they had listened. Evidently, the disciples missed his point. They had their lunch bags in their hands, and so were completely preoccupied. He was talking to a socially ostracized and desperate woman whose life had been used and abused till she had no sense of self-worth left. They chided him for talking to this outcast. You must be hungry, they said. Is it not time to eat? I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of my father. There is the first remarkable pointer. If I am to be fulfilled, I must pursue a will that is greater than mine. A fulfilled life is one that has the will of God as its focus, not the appetite of the flesh. He went on to say, Open your eyes. And look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. See John 4 verses 32 to 35. 
Here is our next clue. Maintaining the metaphor of food, he pointed to a hunger that was universal and that went beyond bread and water, a distinctive hunger of universal proportion. Every sentence of his response had food in it, but of a different kind. There was hunger everywhere, he said, and food enough for all, but it was not wheat or water. It was Christ himself, the bread of life and the spring of living water. The Samaritan woman grasped what he said with a fervor that came from an awareness of her real need. The transaction was fascinating. She had come with a bucket. He sent her back with a spring of living water. She'd come as a reject. He sent her back being accepted by God himself. She came wounded. He sent her back whole. She came laden with questions. He sent her back as a source for answers. She came living a life of quiet desperation. She ran back, overflowing with hope. The disciples missed it all. It was lunchtime for them. Interestingly enough, it was only a short while after this conversation with the Samaritan woman that Jesus performed the miracle of feeding the thousands. So bread and food were not absent from his mind. He was moving them from the more difficult to do to the easier to perform, from the eternal to the temporal, from the soul's need to the body's hunger. But they were struck on their desire for more food. They did not get it the first time around. So here it comes again in the sixth chapter of John. But this time Jesus added a very dramatic element. Hunger now takes on a wider scope as it eventually had to if it were to be indicative of life. If we were to enumerate all our hungers, we might be surprised at how many legitimate hungers there are. The hunger for truth, the hunger for love, the hunger for knowledge, the hunger to belong, the hunger to express, the hunger for justice, the hunger of the imagination, the hunger of the mind, and the hunger for significance. We could name more. Vast psychological theories have emerged in recognition of these hungers or needs. Here's the point. Some of our individual pursuits may meet some of these hungers. Education may bring knowledge. Romance may bring a sense of belonging. Accomplishments may bring significance. Wealth brings some things within reach. May bring significance. Wealth brings some things within reach. The message of Jesus affirms that no one thing will meet all of these hungers. And furthermore, none can help us know whether the way we fulfill them is legitimate or illegitimate until we feed on the bread of life that Jesus offers. That nourishment defines the legitimacy of all else. Not only do we remain unfulfilled when we pursue these hungers, but in their very pursuit comes a disorientation that misrepresents and misunderstands where the real satisfaction comes from. This is very, very important to know. There is an old adage that says that you can give a hungry man a fish, or better still, you can teach him how to fish. Jesus would add that you can teach a person how to fish, but that the most successful fisherman has hungers, fish, will not satisfy.
There is a second but not so obvious truth. I am the bread of life, said Jesus. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Notice the power implicit in the claim. At the very heart of every major religion is a leading exponent. As the exposition is studied, something very significant emerges. There comes a bifurcation or a distinction between the person and the teaching. Muhammad to the Quran, Buddha to the Noble Path, Krishna to his philosophizing, Zoroaster to his ethics. Whatever we may make of their claims, one reality is inescapable. They are teachers who point to their teaching or show some particular way. In all of these, there emerges an instruction, a way of living. It is not Zoroaster to whom you turn. It is Zoroaster to whom you listen. It is not Buddha who delivers you. It is his noble truths that instruct you. It is not Muhammad who transforms you. It is the beauty of the Quran that woos you. By contrast, Jesus did not only teach or expound his message. He was identical with his message. In him, say the scriptures, dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He did not just proclaim the truth. He said, I am the truth. He did not just show a way. He said, I am the way. He did not just open up vistas. He said, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the I am. In him is not just an offer of life's bread. He is the bread. That is why being a Christian is not just a way of feeding and living. Following Christ begins with a way of relating and being. Let us use Buddhism as a specific example. It is a system that is gaining a following among many in Hollywood. It is often very simplistically defined as a religion of compassion and ethics. The truth is that there is probably no system of belief more complex than Buddhism. While it starts off with the Four Noble Truths on suffering and its cessation, it then moves to the Eightfold Path on how to end suffering. But as one enters the Eightfold Path, there emerge hundreds upon hundreds of other rules to deal with contingencies. From a simple base of four offenses that result in a loss of one's discipleship status is built an incredible edifice of ways to restoration. Those who follow Buddha's teachings are given 30 rules on how to ward off these pitfalls. But before one even deals with those, there are 92 rules that apply just to one of the offenses. There are 75 rules for those entering the order. There are rules of discipline to be applied, 227 for men, 311 for women. Readers of Buddhism know that Buddha had to be persuaded before women were even permitted into a disciple's status. After much pleading and cajoling by one of his disciples, he finally acceded to the request but laid down extra rules for them. Whatever one may make of all of this, we must be clear that in a non-theistic system which Buddhism is, Ethics become central and rules are added ad infinitum. Buddha and his followers are the originators of these rules. 
The most common prayer for forgiveness in Buddhism from the Buddhist common prayer reflects this numerical maze. I quote, I beg leave, I beg leave, I beg leave. May I be freed at all times from the four states of woe, the three scourges, the eight wrong circumstances, the five enemies, the four deficiencies, the five misfortunes, and quickly attain the path, the fruition, and the noble law of nirvana, Lord. End of quote. Teaching at best beckons us to morality, but it is not in itself efficacious. Teaching is like a mirror. It can show you if your face is dirty, but the mirror will not wash your face. To truly understand this complicated theory, one would almost need a graduate level understanding in philosophy and psychology. By contrast, in a very simple way, Jesus drew the real need of his audience to that hunger which is spiritual in nature, a hunger that is shared by every human, so that we are not human livings or human doings, but human beings. We are not in need merely of a superior ethic. We are in need of a transformed heart and will that seeks to do the will of God. Jesus also taught and held up a mirror, but by his person, he transforms our will to seek his. It is our being that Jesus wants to feed. Christ warns that there are depths to our hungers that the physical does not plumb. There are heights to existential aspirations that our activities cannot attain. There are breadths of need that the natural cannot span. In summary, he reminds us that bread cannot sustain interminably. He is the bread of life that eternally sustains, and he does it as no other has ever done. Having made his point of the limitations of bread, and that he was the eternal bread of life, Jesus now comes to the thought that they needed to carefully consider. No one will deny the uniqueness of the thought here. There is nothing in any other religion that would even come close to this profound teaching. Our greatest hunger, as Jesus described it, is for a consummate relationship that combines the physical and the spiritual, that engenders both awe and love, that is expressed in celebration and commitment. In other words, that hunger is for worship. But worship is not accomplished only by a transaction uttered in a prayer or a wish. Worship is a posture of life that takes as its primary purpose the understanding of what it really means to love and revere God. It is the most sacred intimacy of all. This is where the broken piece of bread provides the means of expression and transaction. On my first visit to the kingdom of Jordan, my family and I were hosted to a very special meal on the eve of our departure. They called it mensef. The guests stood around a large platter of rice, beautifully garnished with succulent delicacies, flavored with aromatic spices and a gravy that gave it a mouth-watering taste. But then came the fun part. We all rolled up our sleeves and together enjoyed the meal directly from the tray, eating it with our bare hands. That was Middle Eastern food with all of its purposes and at its best. For one of Indian descent, which is my birthright, it was like coming home and more. 
There is a symbolism to that way of eating, the enjoyment of a delightful combination of food, the fellowship one with the other, the touch of the hand into the same platter, the celebration of life and its purpose, all signifying trust and closeness and the memories of days we had spent together. Every detail was an invitation saying, Welcome to our home and become one of us. We were greeted with a kiss, bidden goodbye with a kiss. We had gathered as friends and left with an intimate trust of a deeper friendship. That, may I add, is only an inkling of what Jesus was offering to his followers, communion with him. Even atheistic religions like Buddhism and pantheistic religions like Hinduism, though they deny a personal absolute God, still smuggle in ways of worship in which a personal being is addressed only because the isolation within drives the self to a transcendent personal other. The reason for this is that we are more than just in search of ritual. We are in fact broken. We have broken away from God. We are broken in relationship to our fellow human beings. And the most elusive reality is that we are broken even from ourselves. We do not connect with our own proclivities. Life is a story of brokenness. This is at the core of the gospel. We have come apart from within. And to this brokenness, Jesus brings the real answer, not just a simplistic, come and get fed. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life in this world. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. In the practice of the Christian faith, this sharing of the bread and of the cup has been aptly called communion. God has come near, and we enjoy the indwelling of his presence in us. The contrast here from every other faith is as diametric as one can imagine. Hinduism, at its heart and in its goals, teaches us that we are to seek union with the divine. Why union? Because the Hindu claims that we are part and parcel of this divine universe. The goal of the individual is, therefore, to discover the divinity and live it out. Listen again to the words of Deepak Chopra on this purpose of life. He makes this assertion in the early part of his book. Quote, In reality, we are divinity in disguise, and the gods and goddesses in embryo that are contained within us seek to be fully materialized. True success is therefore the experiencing of the miraculous. It is the unfolding of the divinity within us. End of quote. Later in his book, Chopra makes a statement that forms the basis of his philosophy. Here's the quote. We must find out for ourselves that inside us is a god or goddess in embryo that wants to be born so that we can express our divinity. End of quote. I cannot resist asking, who is the we? Who is the god? Who is the self? Are these different entities with which we are cohabiting? Is there a god who needs me? Which me? To bring him? Which him? if it is actually me, to birth so that my deluded self will cease to be deluded and will emerge divine as the real self. How did this God end up in embryonic form while I became full grown? 
so that I will give him the privilege of birth and lose my humanity to find my divinity? At the risk of being frivolous, this is the ultimate version of who's on first. Toward the end of his book, Chopra asks us to make a commitment to the beliefs he has espoused in these words, quote, Today, I will lovingly nurture the god or goddess in embryo that lies deep within my soul. I will pay attention to the spirit within me that animates both my body and my mind. I will awaken myself to this deep stillness within my heart. I will carry the consciousness of timeless, eternal being in the midst of time-bound experience. End of quote. This is the heart of philosophical Hinduism, self-deification. One of India's premier philosophers, Dr. Radhakrishnan, stated as forthrightly as one could, man is God in a temporary state of self-forgetfulness. How can it be that we are the outworking of the quantum world, but at the same time gods? Is this what a few thousand years of human history has taught us? We are lonely and confused gods who have lost our way? This is the reason the you disappears in Hinduism and the meditative process is enjoined so that we can as individuals merge with the one impersonal absolute, the capital I, because there is no significant other. While Hinduism goes to one extreme, the deification of the self, Islam is at the other extreme. In Islam, the distance between God and humanity is so vast that the I never gets close to the him in God. And because this distance between the two is impossible to cross, worship takes on an incredible clutter of activity designed to bring the worshipper close. Repetition and submission take the place of the warmth of a relationship. One only need glimpse a Muslim at worship to see the difference. With all that he observes and all the rules he keeps, there is never a certainty of heaven for the common person in Islam. It is all in the will of God, they say. One's destiny is left at the mercy of an unknown will when relationship is swallowed up by rules. Political power and enforcement become the means of containment. One day a Muslim friend and I were out for the day together. I'd forgotten that the fast of Ramadan had just begun and suggested that we step into a restaurant for a cup of coffee. I will spend years in jail for that cup of coffee, he said, so of course I apologize for the suggestion. Then in low tones he admitted that his fast was restricted to public view and that he did not practice it in private. I cannot work ten hours a day without eating, he said. There was an awkward silence and he muttered these words. I don't think God is the enforcer of these rules. As anyone knows who has asked any Muslim, they will admit with a smile upon their faces that during the month of the fast of Ramadan, more food is sold than during any other month of the year, but its consumption takes place from dusk to dawn rather than from dawn to dusk. Legalism always breeds compliance over purpose. In the Christian message, the God who is distinct and distant came close so that we who are weak may be made strong and may be drawn close in communion with God himself, even as our identity is retained as we are. That simple act of communion encapsulated life's purpose. The individual retains his individuality while dwelling in community. The physical retains its physicality, but is transcended by the spiritual. The elements retain their distinctness, but become bearers of truth that point beyond themselves 
to a spiritual fellowship that our spirits long for. Just as the consummate act of love between a man and his wife concretely expresses all that the moral and spiritual relationship embraces, so the simple act of taking the broken bread and the cup encompasses the actual reality of the intermeshing of God's presence in the life of the individual. It is an act of worship that represents a life that is full of meaning. The ramifications are profound. The disciples came to Jesus asking for the abundance of bread so their stomachs could be full. They discovered that there was bread of a different kind, broken for them because of a deeper emptiness than they had imagined. They had bought their lunch at a nearby restaurant, but they were being invited to a different table. With their purchase, they would soon be hungry again. Jesus was offering them eternal fulfillment with moment-by-moment freshness. That is why the task of the church is not so much to make God relevant to the people as much as it is to make people relevant to God. There is a magnificent wood carving in Worms, Germany, called the Altar of Blood. It is a depiction of the Lord breaking the bread for the disciples. I stared at that masterpiece which took years of a craftsman's life to complete and found it beyond my capability to describe. It is the heart of what God calls us to. It is in that exchange that he sobers the mind, quietens the heart, and bridges every barrier. Is our God so small that he cannot impart life without cannibalizing? Those who understand the depth of what communion means understand the fulfillment of worship. Those who don't understand leave hungry and cannibalize their own souls. Is God the source of my suffering? I would like to begin this chapter by respectfully quoting, with the permission of the writer, portions of one of the most heartbreaking letters I have ever received. I truly admire the courage, the candor, and the teachability of the man who wrote it. It is obviously not easy to bear one's soul. My heart aches for him and his family in this terribly painful experience. This letter, though specific and immediate in the writer's context, represents a question asked of Jesus 2,000 years ago in a similar situation. In fact, for all of us, if we're honest, behind this question lies possibly one of the greatest barriers to belief in God. Here's how the letter goes. Dear Mr. Zacharias, I need your help desperately. I'm not asking for money or anything like that. I seek your counsel. Please take time to read this letter. It is extremely personal and heartbreaking. My situation is serious, and I am now well into my second year of torment and fear. I thought I would be able to figure out all the answers I would need to find peace in my soul, but have continually run into the proverbial brick wall. Or perhaps the answer was there all the time, and it is just too grim for me to accept. I don't know. Quite simply, I'm confused and frightened, and I need your help. On August 4, 1997, at 3.15 p.m., my son, Adam Mark Triplett, died in an airplane accident. It happened in the town of New Richmond, Wisconsin. Adam was a flight instructor for a local flight school in St. Paul, Minnesota. Adam was a respected student, fine musician, professional pilot, devoted friend, and dedicated Christian man. 
He was also a delightful brother, husband and son. My only son. Adam died at the age of 23. After only three months of marriage, I can't imagine life without him. He goes on a little later. A few years ago, my wife and I purchased a new computer. Little did I know how much danger it would bring into my life. One day, casually exploring the Internet with my newfound friend of technology, I was surprised to discover an email message sent to me anonymously. To my shock and surprise, I found myself looking at a picture of perversion and hardcore pornography. I became angered by this vulgar intrusion and set out to find out more of where it came from. I continued my search, thinking I could become a crusader of sorts for the cause of decency. But I fell victim to the wiles and devices of the devil himself and soon became trapped in a pattern of personal viewing. If I had a, quote, bad day at work or the car broke down, any excuse would do, I would settle the score, as it were, by balancing the scales with a bit of personal viewing. By now, I justified my personal viewing as not harmful. I wasn't intruding on or hurting anyone else. I paid no attention to what I was doing to myself. One day at church, I found myself in personal viewing in my mind, not paying attention to the pastor's message. Fear jumped into my heart, and I began to try to do away with this evil practice. No success. The downward spiral continued affecting my business and family relationships, to say nothing of my responsibilities as a leader in my church. On August 4th, I dropped my son off at the airport. His next student was waiting for him. As he walked away from the car, he turned and smiled and gave me a thumbs-up sign, our personal sign of approval. As I drove away looking in the rearview mirror, I had a strange and faint realization that it would be the last time I would ever see him on earth. I shook it off as a random thought. I discarded it, forgot it completely. I went back to work. By the end of the day, I was in a steep rage over God only knows what. And I decided that I would just go home and do some personal viewing. At least I could find some satisfaction there, I thought. As I was driving very quietly, almost in a whisper-like tone, Soft and gentle, in a pleading voice, I felt God saying to me, Mark, please, I don't want you to do that. My response was harsh and direct. Oh, you don't want me to. Big deal. You don't want me to do anything, do you? I always have to be perfect, don't I? Well, not today. The Lord then spoke a bit louder and more serious. I'm asking you not to behave this way. Again, I responded with arrogance. How are you going to stop me? What will you do? Kill my son? The third time the Lord spoke to me, but this time his tone was more forceful, strict and authoritative. Mark, you don't understand. I'm telling you that I do not want you behaving this way. By now my ego was in full swing. My response was deliberate and direct. I heard no more from the Lord regarding the issue. I arrived home at about 5.30. My wife was cooking on the grill in the backyard. She asked me if I'd heard of a plane crash that day. I said no. She seemed unnerved and suspicious and afraid. I felt something was wrong. Then the sheriff arrived. Katrina, Adam's sister, screamed. Linda wept uncontrollably. I was completely numb, but felt a presence of strength take over my body and mind. I believe it was God's Holy Spirit. In the weeks that followed Adam's death, I began recalling the events of that day. 
I became consumed with the guilt of my sin against God that day. I became acutely aware of my wretchedness and the need to fall at his feet and seek forgiveness. Was I to blame for this horror? Oh, dear God, let it not be so. End of quote. As you can well imagine, this letter stopped my day. As I read it, with each paragraph, the anguish intensified as blood flowing into emptied arteries. My heart throbbed, beating out sensations of self-examination. Everything else faded into secondary importance. I put myself in this man's shoes and imagined the horror. How much more painful can life be than to carry such enormous guilt, laden on top of such tragedy? When the wording was narrowed down, the sharp question remained, Did God take my son's life? Was he making me pay for going against his wishes? This double-pronged search for an answer, Is God the author of pain? Is my pain because of my sin? Has disturbed both skeptic and believer alike. Every thinking person attempting to make sense of a world enriched with good, but convulsing with evil, tries to think this through, yet finds no easy solution, especially when something as dramatic as this happens. After centuries of debate, to find an adequate response remains a daunting task. It is a question worthy of our greatest attention. At the same time, I'm convinced that there is no more comprehensive answer to the problem of suffering and evil than the one that the Christian faith affords. The Bible does not avoid raising this struggle. Jesus faced this question head-on. Sometimes it came to him in subtle forms, sometimes in direct tones. The most striking incident in which he faced this challenge is recorded in the ninth chapter of John's Gospel. The discussion ensues on the heels of one of the lengthiest reports of any miracle that he performed. There is more than normal dialogue that precedes and succeeds this particular healing. And the reason is because an explanation is sought for a person's physical deformity. As Jesus was walking along with his disciples, a man who was blind crossed their path. The disciples in this instance were not content just to witness the miracle of sight restored. They went for the jugular, aiming quite clearly at the role of God in a tragic situation. One of the disciples asked Jesus rather abruptly, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Is he responsible for his plight, or is someone else the cause? Jesus completely surprised them with his response that it was neither the young man nor his parents that were responsible for the man's deformity. This happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What did he mean that the work of God might be displayed in his life? It is obvious that Jesus' answer in this passage goes beyond the agonies of parents who have lost their children or of those who have graciously borne much pain. He recognized immediately that there was a question behind the question. The answer, therefore, goes deeper, not only to touch the pain of the human heart, but to understand the breadth of evil, pain, and suffering. If we are to go as deep, the answer necessarily will take us through a long journey. The question simply cannot be answered while ignoring possible challenges to the answer at every stage. Those who stay with it 
will see that the biblical worldview is the only one that accepts the reality of evil and suffering while giving both the cause and the purpose and offering God-given strength and sustenance in the midst of it. Those who refuse to accept these truths that Jesus presents will continue to find this a barrier to God and I dare suggest a barrier to reason itself. Years ago, there was a light-hearted story making the rounds. It was the story of a breakdown in a power plant that sent the city into confusion. For a long time, no engineer could be found who was able to fix the problem. Finally, a man came along who, by the push of a button, restored the system. He billed the city for a million and one dollars. Surprised at the numbers, somebody asked him why it was a million and one, and not just a million. His answer was that one dollar was for pushing the button. The one million dollars was for knowing where to push. At first glance, Jesus' response to their question seems rather meager. It consists of a few simple statements, but those brief lines are weighted with comprehension on a larger scale. That is why the incredible depth in Jesus' answer can only be appreciated if the worldview behind it is understood. To just take hold of these few lines and miss the context of his total message is to do violence to a very important theme. To avoid that peril, I will take the question back to its underlying challenge and face the hard but real struggle of evil and pain in a world to which a loving God lays claim. Once we have comprehended the broader Christian perspective, we will understand that Christ readily answers the immediate question in light of the bigger question behind it. The first escape route in the problem of evil is propounded by those who protest that God cannot exist because there is too much evil evident in life. They see no logical contradiction within their system since they do not have to prove that evil coexists with a good creator. Evil exists, therefore the creator does not. That is categorically stated. Ah, but here Christianity provides a counter-challenge to remind them that they have not escaped the problem of contradiction. If evil exists, then one must assume that good exists in order to know the difference. If good exists, one must assume that a moral law exists by which to measure good and evil. But if a moral law exists, must not one posit an ultimate source of moral law or at least an objective basis for a moral law. By an objective basis, I mean something that is transcendingly true at all times, regardless of whether I believe it or not. This argument is very compelling and must be given due consideration by anyone who denies the existence of God but accepts the presence of evil. In contrast to the Christian's assertion, that God is necessary in order to posit the notions of good and evil, the skeptic responds by asking, why cannot evolution explain our moral sense? Why do we need God? This is the latest approach by anti-theistic thinkers who seek to explain good and evil apart from God. Over the years, naturalists first denied causality as an argument to prove God's existence. Why do we have to have a cause? Why can't the universe just be? Then they denied design as an argument for God's existence. Why do we need a designer? Why could it not have all just come together with the appearance of design? Now they deny morality as an argument for God's existence. 
why do we need to posit a moral law or a moral law source? Why can't it just be a pragmatic reality? This I find fascinating. They want a cause for suffering or a design for suffering, but they have already denied that either of these is necessary to account for every effect. This attempt to deny God because of the presence of evil is so fraught with the illogical that one marvels at its acceptance. Not one proponent of evolutionary ethics has explained how an impersonal, amoral first cause through a non-moral process has produced a moral basis for life while at the same time denying any objective moral basis for good and evil. Does it not seem odd that of all the permutations and combinations that a random universe might afford, we should end up with the notions of the true, the good, and the beautiful? In reality, why call anything good and evil? Why not call them orange and purple? That way we settle it as different preferences. The truth is that we cannot escape the existential rub by running from a moral law. Objective moral values exist only if God exists. Is it all right, for example, to mutilate babies for entertainment? Every reasonable person will say, no. We know that objective moral values do exist, therefore God must exist. Examining those premises and their validity presents a very strong argument. In fact, J.L. Mackey, one of the most vociferous atheists, who challenged the existence of God on the basis of the reality of evil, granted at least this logical connection when he said, quote, We might well argue that objective, intrinsically prescriptive features, supervenient upon natural ones, constitute so odd a cluster of qualities and relations that they are most unlikely to have arisen in the ordinary course of events without an all-powerful God to create them. End of quote. Therefore, the conclusion must be agreed upon that nothing can be intrinsically, prescriptively good unless there also exists a God who has fashioned the universe thus. But that is the very being skeptics want to deny because of the existence of evil. The first door to flee from God is opened, and the sight is terrifying. Only one option is left, and that is to try to alter the shape of the door, recognizing that if evil is admitted, then an objective moral law might need to be invoked. The skeptic tries a new tack. Listen to this incredible explanation by one of atheism's champions, Richard Dawkins of Oxford. Quote, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no other good, nothing but blind pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. End of quote. Do you see what has happened? The skeptic started by presenting a long list of horrific things, saying, these are immoral, therefore there is no God. But to raise these issues as moral issues, 
is to assume a state of affairs that evolution cannot afford. There is just no way to arrive at a morally compelling ought given the assumptions of naturalism. What then does the skeptic do? He denies objective moral values because to accept such a reality would be to allow for the possibility of God's existence. He concludes then that there really isn't such a thing as evil after all. This is supposed to be an answer. If DNA neither knows nor cares, what is it that prompts our knowing and our caring? Are we just embodied computers overvaluing our senses? If our feelings have no bearing at all on the reality of this question, then maybe ours is the artificial intelligence and the computer's is the genuine one, for it has no feeling. It has only information. Computers do not care, do not grieve over evil, and are therefore closer to reality. Is this what we have come to? We must be warned that there are no brakes on this slippery slope once we step onto it. The denial of an objective moral law based on the compulsion to deny the existence of God results ultimately in the denial of evil itself. Can you imagine telling a raped woman that the rapist merely danced to his DNA? Tell the father of young Adam Triplett that he is merely dancing to his DNA. Tell the victims of Auschwitz that their tormentors merely danced to their DNA. And tell the loved ones of those cannibalized by Jeffrey Dahmer that he merely danced to his DNA. So dance along. How repugnant. It's not a dance. This is the escapist's foot on the throat of reason gasping for rationality while denying that logical points of reference exist. In effect, while seeking an answer to the question of evil, he ends up denying the question. In fact, I put this theory to the test with some students at Oxford University. I asked a group of skeptics if I took a baby and sliced it to pieces before them, would I have done anything wrong? They had just denied that objective moral values exist. At my question, there was silence. Then the lead voice in the group said, and I quote, I would not like it, but no, I could not say you have done anything wrong. End of quote. My, what an esthete. He would not like it. My, what irrationality. He could not brand it wrong. I only had to ask him that if evil is denied, what then remains of the original question? In pathetic ways, we saw this exemplified when America was caught in the throes of the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. In our moral contradiction, an amazing cultural mood was uncovered. The president's famous line that it all depends on what the definition of is is sent reporters scampering onto the streets with the question of the century, do words have a fixed meaning or may we give them any meaning we choose? What could encroach upon itself more than purveyors of words inquiring if words have any meaning while using words to ask the question. To the utter surprise of the surveyors, most people seem to agree that words can sometimes mean different things to different people, assuming, of course, that there was no equivocation in the meaning as the question was posed and the answer given. That prompted the next question. Quote, is morality an absolute or a private matter? End of quote. The overwhelming response came back that morality is a private matter. 
These two questions became the lead-in on a CNN news report. First, that words have only personal meaning. Second, that morality is a private matter. Ironically, the third item on the news was that the United States had just issued a stern warning to Saddam Hussein that if he did not stop playing word games with the nuclear inspection teams, we would start bombing Iraq. Suddenly, words did matter. We would not let Saddam dance to his DNA. We would not let him write his own dictionary. We would not let him live by his own ethic. But we could let each of our citizens determine the meaning of the words we used and insist that our morality was no one else's business. This is precisely the world to which Dawkins and those of similar philosophy must be logically driven. It is a world of systemic contradiction. If morality is nothing more than evolution's climb, then there is no way to measure when we have reached the top. By their own admission, there was no prevision in the random collocation of atoms. In the end, such a philosophy of evil makes life unlivable in a community. Dawkins cannot explain evil by denying an objective moral law, and he cannot deny evil without losing his challenge for the existence of God. This door for the skeptic is marked, no exit, even as his ship sinks. The second door seems at first to be a certain way out. The skeptic asks why God could not have made us to always choose good. Philosophers of note have raised this as the sharpest edge of their challenge to Christianity. But here too the challenge violates reason. Alvin Plantinga of the University of Notre Dame, who is considered by many to be the most respected Protestant philosopher of our time, has made a strong and compelling argument against this challenge of the skeptic. He argues that this option bears a false view of what God's omnipotence means. We must realize that God cannot do that which is mutually exclusive and logically impossible. God cannot make square circles. The terms are mutually exclusive. Plantinga is right. I might add that if God can do anything at all, even that which is mutually exclusive, then he can also contradict his character, which would by implication render the problem of evil moot, needing no defense. The very reason we raise the question is because we seek coherence. In a world where love is the supreme ethic, freedom must be built in. A love that is programmed or compelled is not love. It is merely a conditioned response or self-serving. Both doors of escape for the skeptic are shut tight. You cannot posit evil without a transcendent moral law which macroevolution cannot sustain. And you cannot gain the highest ethic without the possibility of freedom. The first sends us into lives of contradiction. The second demands a contradiction of God. In brief, for the naturalist, the man born blind was dancing to his DNA. As to the question behind the question, the naturalist not only fails to answer it, he fails even to justify it. How would other religions answer the disciples' question and the question behind the question? As I have stated, pantheistic religions have attempted extensive answers, and sometimes those answers are terribly confusing. The difficulty with Hinduism is that it has no monolithic answer to the problem of suffering. By declaring everything in the physical world to be non-real, illusory, changing, transitory, it ends up with philosophical problems beyond measure. And of course, one is compelled to ask, what has brought on this illusion of evil? 
if everything is part and parcel of the divine reality, they do try to answer that. There is a classic passage in the Bhagavad Gita in which Krishna counsels young Arjuna who is on the battlefield facing the possibility of killing his own half-brothers. He struggles and cannot bring himself to do this. Krishna, who comes as his chariot driver, talks to him about his duty. This was his duty to fulfill his caste's responsibility as a warrior. This is the There is a humorous story told of India's leading philosopher Shankara, who had just finished lecturing the king on the deception of the mind and its delusion of material reality. In Brahman, says Krishna, the distinction breaks down. That which appears evil is only the lesser reality. In the end, all life, all good, all evil flow from Brahman and back to him or it. Go to war and do your job. This convergence of everything into one absolute reality forms the hub of the answer to the question behind the question. One can see how a sense of fatalism dominates. There is no way for classical Hinduism to deal with the problem of evil. To deny that evil is real does not diminish wickedness, nor does it daunt the heart's desire to seek purity. So much of Hindu worship is steeped in purification rites. That is why the entire corpus of popular Hinduism is filled with the forms of worship, fear of punishment, means of obtaining God's favor, etc. Buddhism also invokes the doctrine of karma and reincarnation. The opening lines of the Buddhist scriptures say that every individual is the sum total of what he or she thought in his or her past life. One of the collections of Buddha's discourses is called the Angutra Nikaya. Here are some thoughts. Quote, My karma, past and present actions, is my only property. Karma is my heritage. Karma is the only cause of my being. Karma is my only kin, my only protection. Whatever actions I do, good or bad, I shall become their heir. End of quote. So for Buddhism too, the answer to the disciples' question regarding the blind man's predicament, who sinned, this man or his parents, would be both this man and his parents have sinned. The suffering of the blind man is the inheritance of his past life sin, and it is the lot of the parents to inherit this situation. They do have a difference though. Hinduism argued by saying that behind the world of the transitory or non-real lies what is ultimately real. Buddhism Reverse that by saying that behind the real world is actually impermanence. Thus, the reason for all our cravings is that because we think there is permanence, we have cravings. Once we know there is nothing permanent, not even the self, then we stop craving. In the state of enlightenment, the self is extinguished and all desire and therefore suffering is gone. That is the goal of Buddhism. How can we end suffering? According to Buddhist teaching, if we can obliterate desire, we will obliterate evil. In fact, the very word nirvana means the negation of the jungle of desire to which our rebirths have condemned us. What becomes evident is that the pantheistic ship comes apart on the reef of evil. One cannot affirm the absence of a self while individualizing nirvana and one cannot talk about the cessation of suffering without also giving the origin of the first wrong thought. Buddhism has an intricate set of rules and regulations because it needs them. 
as a non-theistic path, it is a road strewn with karma. It recognizes it and then fatalistically shuts its eyes to it, seeking escape. In striking contrast, the Christian message recognizes the horror of evil and seeks to offer a morally justifiable reason for God to allow suffering. Let us turn to the Christian response so that we may see the difference. When all the scriptures have said is pulled together, there are six elements that combine to give an explanation that is coherent and unique. No escape is sought either in the denial of the question or in the implications of the answer. First, the God of the Bible reveals himself as the author of life and as the being in whom all goodness dwells. The chasm between the skeptic and the Christian is huge right from the start. God is not merely good. This means that with reference to God, we are dealing with more than moral issues of right and wrong, pleasure or pain. We are dealing with a transcendent source of goodness that is opted for not because it is better in a hierarchy of options, but because it is the very basis from which all differences are made. Moral categories for us often move in comparisons and hierarchies. We talk in terms of judging or feeling that one thing is better than another. Our culture is more advanced morally than someone else's culture, at least so we may think. God's existence changes those varying categories and moves us not in comparative categories, but into a presentation of the very essence of what the word goodness is based upon. God is holy. This difference is what makes the argument almost impossible for a skeptic to grasp. Holiness is not merely goodness. Why did God not create us to choose only good? Why do bad things happen to good people? The reality is that the opposite of evil in degree may be goodness, but the opposite of absolute evil in kind is absolute holiness. In the biblical context, the idea of holiness is the tremendous otherness of God. God does not just reveal himself as good. He reveals himself as holy. Here, Islam and Christianity do find a partially common perspective. God is transcendent, not only in his being, but in his nature. God's holiness in turn conveys an intrinsic sanctity to our lives. We are his offspring. This is not a culturally conferred sacredness or a legally determined sacredness. Every person has intrinsic value. That value is one's birthright with God as his or her heavenly father. Was it not that recognition that prompted the question in the first place? If my birth is sacred, then what wrong merited my blindness? Second, from this authorship flows a deduction. If God is the author of life, there must be a script. We are not in Jean-Paul Sartre's terms, empty bubbles floating on the sea of nothingness. We are not on a cruise with no purpose or destination or instruments. It is not that the world is a stage and we can pick and choose different scripts. The lines that are given tell us that this is not a play, but real life that directs the story in every act and thought. The individual subplot must gain its direction 
from the larger story of God's purpose for our lives. The blind man, the disciples and the neighbors all knew this story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was sovereign over every life. How did this man's blindness fit into the story? The particular was seeking an explanation in the larger context. If the larger plot were fully understood, the smaller story would make sense. I once had the privilege to attend a lecture at Cambridge University when Stephen Hawking was speaking. His goal was to examine the question, is man determined or free? Hawking went through his material meticulously and then came his long-awaited conclusion, and I quote, is man determined? Yes, but since we do not know what has been determined, we may as well not be, end of quote. The audience all but groaned. There were actual audible sounds of disappointment. You see, there is no way to understand design without a pattern. There is no right way to live out life if there is no script. In fact, not only do we lose the story, we also lose all commonality of reference for meaning. God has a script. He has spoken of it in the scriptures. Finding the script moves us closer to solving the mystery. Third, if there is a story, what is at the heart of it? Not only is God holy, but he reveals to us the sacred nature of love to which he beckons us, and from this sacredness of his love must flow all other loves. The important aspect of this logical flow is that intrinsic sanctity provides both the reason and the parameters of love. The inability to understand the mystery of evil leads to an inability to understand the sacredness of love. A deadly mistake that I believe our cultures make in the pursuit of meaning is this illusion that love devoid of the sacred, a naked love, is all we need to carry us through life's tests and passions. Such a love cannot sustain us. Millions of lives are hurt every day in the name of love. Millions of betrayals have been made every day because of love. Love may make the world go round, but it does not keep life straight. In fact, love by itself will make evil more painful. Love can only be what it was meant to be when it is wedded first to the sacred. Sacredness means separateness. Holiness beckons not just to love, but moves in increments till it is climaxed in worship. What does all this have to do with suffering? Everything. You see? When the skeptic asks why God did not fashion us so that we would only choose good, he or she completely misses, drastically misses, what goodness is in God's eyes. Goodness is not an effect. If an effect is all that is important, of course God could make us that way. There is nothing logically contradictory about making us as automatons. But if life is born out of sacredness, neither goodness nor love alone is the goal. It is reverence, and it must be chosen, even when it is hard and costly. This kind of love is a choice to let the sanctity of life dictate the commitment of the will. This kind of reverential love can only look upon suffering and see it beyond the clutches of time and through the victory of eternity.
Dr. J. Robertson McQuilkin was formerly the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. He's one of the most remarkable people in our world. He's a conference speaker and author of note. But none of those credentials exceed his exemplary and heart-gripping love for his ailing wife, Muriel. She has walked down the grim and lonely world of Alzheimer's disease for the last 20 years. Dr. McQuilkin gave up his presidency and numerous other responsibilities to care for her and to love her. He has spent his emotional journey in one of the most magnificent little books ever written. At one point in the book, he recounts this little incident. I quote, Once our life was delayed in Atlanta, and we had to wait a couple of hours. Now that's a challenge. Every few minutes, the same questions. Same answers about what we're doing here. When are we going home? And every few minutes, we take a fast-paced walk down the terminal in earnest search of what? Muriel had always been a speed walker. I had to jog to keep up with her. An attractive woman sat across from us working diligently on her computer. Once we returned from an excursion, she said something without looking up from her papers. Since no one spoke to me, or at least mumbled in protest of our constant activity, Pardon? I asked. Oh, she said, I was just asking myself, will I ever find a man to love me like that? End of quote. What a testimony that is to a great love and to a great hunger. Will any one of us find a love, a selfless love like that? We all recognize a sacred love when we see it and we long for it. Sacred love is not without boundaries. There are lines that commitment will not cross because when they are crossed, it ceases to be love. Douglas Copeland gives a sobering reflection of a generation, himself included, that wandered in the wilderness of life without God. He cuts through the hype and the velvety veneer of absolute freedom and at the end of his book writes a surprising postscript. I quote, Now, here is my secret. I tell you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God, that I am sick, and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give, because I no longer seem to be capable of giving, to help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness, to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. End of quote. Only when holiness and worship meet can evil be conquered. For that, only the Christian message has the answer. This brings us to the fourth step. How is it possible for the sacred to acknowledge the reality of evil and still be able to offer a morally justifiable explanation? The core of the Christian message posits a way that by all estimates has been a unique and matchless expression in the face of evil. Jesus described his journey to the cross as the very purpose for which he came. His death in that manner brings a message with double force. It demonstrates the destructiveness of evil, which is the cause of suffering, and in Jesus' example, the ability to withstand suffering even though it is undeserved. Suffering and pain did not spare the very Son of God. Looking at him on the cross were the very ones who sang songs of joy at his birth. Surely, for Mary, this had to be an utterly traumatic moment. The one who was conceived of God was now at the mercy of man. But I suspect she knew in her heart that something had yet to be completed in the script. 
looking at the cross, evil becomes a mirror of fearsome reality. But by carefully looking into the cross, we discover that it is not opaque, but translucent, and we are able to glimpse true evil through it. The suffering of Jesus is a study in the anatomy of pain. At its core, evil is a challenge of moral proportions against a holy God. It is not merely a struggle with our discomfort. The more grim the reality we face, the more obvious is the measuring stick. Though secular thinkers persist in hiding from this truth, we cannot explain appalling wickedness without seeing through it for what it really is. Where does one look for the explanation? With compelling measure, the cross of Jesus Christ brings into focus evil's assault upon innocence so that we can see both a mirror and a window. How this comes about, I can make but a feeble attempt to explain as we lisp toward clarity. Just some days ago, I happened to be in Calcutta. It is a city that shows its wounds in public. Some estimates claim up to two million people living on the streets, the old and the young, infants, by the millions, hurting. The pain is so evident and so pervasive that its effect is to anesthetize you against it. Then, with some friends, we visited an orphanage operated by the order founded by Mother Teresa. As we walked in, children rose to their feet in their tiny little beds, and shouts of uncle came from different parts of the room as little arms were raised. Our hearts melted and tears flooded our eyes. Goodness in the face of evil is magnificent because it is more than goodness. It is the touch of God. Is this possibly what Malcolm Muggeridge meant when he said, and I quote, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've ever learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness whether pursued or attained. This, of course, is what the cross signifies, and it is the cross more than anything else that has called me inexorably to Christ. End of quote. Nobel laureate Ali Wiesel relates in one of his essays an experience he had when he was a prisoner in Auschwitz. A Jewish prisoner was being executed while the rest of the camp were forced to watch. As the prisoner hung on the gallows, kicking and struggling in the throes of death, refusing to die, an onlooker was heard to mutter under his breath with increasing desperation, Where is God? Where is he? From out of nowhere, Wiesel says a voice within him spoke to his own heart saying, Right there on the gallows. Where else? Theologian Jürgen Moltmann, commenting on Wiesel's story, astutely observed that any other answer would have been blasphemous. Is there a more concrete illustration than the death of Christ to substantiate God's presence right in the midst of pain? He bore the brunt of the pain inflicted by the wickedness of his persecutors and showed us the heart of God. He displayed in his own suffering what the work of God is all about in changing our hearts from evil to holiness. Only when one comes to the cross and sees both in it and beyond it can evil be put in perspective.
what emerges from all of these thoughts is that God conquers not in spite of the dark mystery of evil, but through it. Mahatma Gandhi made the comment that of all the truths of the Christian faith, the one that stood supreme to him was the cross of Jesus. He granted that it was without parallel. It was the innocent dying for the guilty, the pure exchange for the impure. This evil cannot be understood through the eyes of ones who crucified him, but only from the eyes of the crucified one. It is only the one who died for our sin who can explain to us what evil is, not the skeptics. The cross points the way to a full explanation. This leads to the how of it all. Fifth, if all that has preceded is true, then the focus of evil should shift dramatically. Evil is more than an exterior reality that engenders universal suffering. It is an internal reality from which we run. I recall talking to a very successful and very wealthy businessman who throughout the conversation repeatedly raised this question, but what about all the evil in this world? Finally, the friend sitting next to me said to him, I hear you constantly expressing a desire to see a solution to the problem of evil around you. Are you as troubled by the problem of evil within you? In the pin drop silence that followed, the man's face showed his duplicity. The problem of evil begins with me. One of the shortest letters written to an editor was by G.K. Chesterton. It read, Dear Sir, in response to your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. This brings us to our final point in the process of sustaining the Christian worldview regarding evil. The surest evidence that evil is not the enemy of meaning is this inescapable existential reality that meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain, but from being weary of pleasure. Pain, but from being weary of pleasure. This obvious truth is conspicuously absent in the arguments of the skeptics. It is not pain that has driven the West into emptiness. It has been the drowning of meaning in the oceans of our pleasures. Pleasure gone wrong is a greater curse than physical blindness. The blindness to the sacred is the cause of all evil. This is where Jesus' answer to the question of the blind man comes through with extraordinary power and relevance. When he says that the man's blindness was due neither to the sin of the man nor of his parents, but so that the glory of God might be displayed, the lesson is drastic because the message is profound. The restoration of his spiritual sight was indispensable to his understanding of the horror of sin's blindness. Darkness is devastating and Jesus offers light and life. His cure was to help them see what they were really blind to, yet refused to see. The problem of evil has ultimately one source. It is the resistance to God's holiness that blanketed all of creation. It is a mystery because we are engulfed in it, spiritual blindness, and there is ultimately only one antidote, the glorious display of God at work within a human soul, bringing about his work of restoration. That transformation tenderizes the heart to become part of the solution and not part of the problem. Such a transformation begins at the cross. But like the skeptics of Jesus' day, some want to find a reason to deny who Christ is and the healing he can bring. 
like the neighbors, the curious masses wish to know how it happened, like the parents, those who come into close contact will witness the transformation that Christ brings, and like the blind man, those who have personally experienced Christ's power to transform their lives will understand the greater blindness from which they have been rescued. This may be the real-life illustration of the struggle of which Mark Triplett wrote with such candor. The truth is not that his suffering and pain was brought about by the death of his son and his fear that he had caused it, as he himself had realized by the terrible scourge of profaning the sacred. He had already brought about a separation from God and suffering to his soul. He recognized what it had done to him. He had betrayed his wife, betrayed his family, and betrayed his God. The purveyors of sensual pleasure knew full well that his insatiable involvement with their offerings would take him down the road to financial waste and the potential death of his marriage. In the name of pleasure, they had inflicted the ultimate pain. Everything of worth was lost. Here at least one man was stopped in his tracks to understand the cause and effect in a way that the skeptic never seems to understand. Whether or not the father's sin had taken the son's life is not the real point. In fact, the truth is that when Mark uttered those angry words to God, Adam was already dead. What is now pertinent is that through the loss of his son's life, the father has been brought face to face with what was killing him on the inside. But in the midst of that tragedy, the work of God was displayed. He procured pleasures of infinitely greater value than the profane pleasures of excitement without worth and without promise. The embrace of a forgiving wife, the lasting impact of a departed son, the fresh commitment to life's sacred trusts, these are the real treasures of life. That which had snared him was suddenly nauseating and repugnant to him. That to which he is now freed is to tell the world that life's real worth is to be found only in God. When God restores our spiritual sight through the mystery of evil, we are then able to see the work of God displayed within the framework of our most difficult question. With tears of joy, we bend before him. In summary, for the Christian, evil is real, this world is real, and time is real. Jesus recognized all three realities with reference to the blind man. He pointed out that this world has built into it the component of time, and upon the anvil of time beats the hammer of eternity until time ultimately reflects the values of the eternal and will be shed as a shell from within which ultimate truths will be freely embraced. When we enter that stage, we will find out that the real anvil was eternity, that time provided the hammers, and that God's glory and purpose will be what remains. Is there a gardener? Many years ago, philosophers Anthony Flew and John Wisdom drafted a parable posing the question of God's existence in the following way, and I quote, Once upon a time, two explorers came upon a clearing in the jungle. In the clearing, growing side by side, were many flowers and many weeds. One of the explorers exclaimed, Some gardener must tend this plot. So they pitched their tents and set a watch. But though they waited several days... No gardener was seen. Perhaps he is an invisible gardener, they thought. So they set up a barbed wire fence and connected it to electricity. 
They even patrolled the garden with bloodhounds, for they remembered that H.G. Wells' invisible man could be both smelt and touched, though he could not be seen. But no sounds ever suggested that someone had received an electric shock. No movements of the wire ever betrayed an invisible climber. The bloodhounds never alerted them to the presence of any other in the garden than themselves. Yet still the believer between them was convinced that there was indeed a gardener. There must be a gardener, invisible, intangible, insensible to electric shocks, a gardener who has no scent and makes no sound, a gardener who comes secretly to look after the garden which he loves. At last the skeptical explorer despaired. But what remains of your original assertion? Just how does what you call an invisible, intangible, eternally elusive gardener differ from an imaginary gardener or even from no gardener at all? End of quote. The point of the parable is clear. How many times have we ourselves asked that we might see God just to be assured that he is actually there? But with all of our waiting and watching like the explorers looking for the gardener, we do not see him. Yet still we contend that he is there. The atheist looks pleadingly and says, show me, God. Our answers seem evasive because we do not have any visible body to point to. Fluent wisdom asks the question of us, what is the difference between an invisible, elusive gardener and no gardener at all? It is a question well taken. Philosopher John Frame responded with a brilliant counterpoint. This is his parable. I quote, Once upon a time, two explorers came upon a clearing in the jungle. A man was there pulling weeds, applying fertilizer, and trimming branches. The man turned to the explorers and introduced himself as the royal gardener. One explorer shook his hand and exchanged pleasantries. The other ignored the gardener and turned away. There can be no garden in this part of the jungle, he said. This must be some trick. Someone is trying to discredit our secret findings. They pitched camp. And every day the gardener arrived to tend the garden. Soon it was bursting with perfectly arranged blooms. But the skeptical explorer insisted he's only doing it because we are here to fool us into thinking that this is a royal garden. One day the gardener took them to the royal palace and introduced the explorers to a score of officials who verified the gardener's status. Then the skeptic tried a last resort. Our senses are deceiving us. There is no gardener, no blooms, no palace, and no officials. It's all a hoax. Finally, the believing explorer despaired. But what remains of your original assertion? Just how does this mirage differ from a real gardener? End of quote. John Frame's point is equally well taken. There is so much intelligibility and specified complexity in this world that it seems willful and prejudiced to try to explain it away with no intelligence behind it. Can morality, personality, and reality be reasonably explained without a personal, moral first cause? How does one explain some of the features of a garden apart from there being a gardener? What kind of proof for a gardener will suffice anyway? What if the gardener did come and was seen and desires that our trust in his work not be dependent on only a direct sighting of him? because the essence of our relationship is not the constancy of sight and intervention, but the steadfastness of trust and sufficiency? Between the taunt brought by flu and wisdom in their parable and the answer given by Frame in his parable, where are we left? Is the evidence for the existence of God merely a matter of perspective, 
Can each side just deride the other and leave it at that? Interestingly enough, the last question the disciples faced when they went looking for Jesus addresses the questions raised by these very parables. Is there a gardener in this combination of flowers and weeds that we call planet Earth? It is a bit of a winding path to follow. But when we get to the end, the reason for this journey might open up new vistas. The goal will be to see whether or not he has spoken to us and how Christ has revealed God to us. Biblical narrative opens with the words, In the beginning, the focus moves quickly to the world God created, the crowning point of which was the creation of man and woman. The context shows a world of relationship, purpose and beauty with natural law set in place and stewardship over creation entrusted to human beings. Tragically, naturalism, in which all reality is explained in natural terms, and theism have collided in these opening verses of the Bible. Instead of understanding the intention and the context of those to whom the revelation was given, the naturalist mocks the Bible's description of God's act of creation as bereft of scientific sophistication. On the other extreme is the theist, who tries to make the record of creation look like a cosmologist's dissertation and then struggles to defend it. The real issue is not the explicability of the material world. The real issue is whether God has spoken through language as well as through nature. Eden surfaces in the question, Did God really say that? Is there only a garden to look at? Or is there also a voice with which the gardener speaks? We come to Genesis and think that we are capable of deciding whether God acted in six days or through 15 billion years. That was not the intention at all. The four major thoughts of the Genesis text have been lost in the volume of extraneous debate. The principal thrust in the opening pages of Genesis is that God is the creator and that he is both personal and eternal. He is a living, communicating God. The second is that the world did not come by accident, but was designed with humanity in mind. Man is an intelligent, spiritual being. The third thrust is that life could not be lived out alone, but through companionship. Man is a relational, dependent being. The fourth aspect is that man was fashioned as a moral entity with the privilege of self-determination. Man is an accountable rational being. Three significant relationships entail that of man toward God, the sanctity of worship, that of man toward his spouse and fellow human beings, the sanctity of relationship, and that of man towards the created order, the sanctity of stewardship upon and from the first flow, the other two. If this order is contrasted with that of the naturalist, the following pattern emerges. The impersonal universe brought itself into being and just happened to strike upon the conditions in which life could arise, the elimination of any ultimate purpose. Somehow over time, in order to thwart disease and destruction and to survive, procreation brought multiplication, the materiality and amorality of sex. Codes were developed that were mutually beneficial, the cultural and relative nature of morality. Every assertion in that paradigm flies in the face of reason and intuition. It is scientifically and existentially incoherent. Take just the first. 
bare nothing has never been known to produce something. Can one scientifically explain how a state of absolute nothingness can bring about intelligent processes and results? However one wants to disagree on the processes, the fact is that this is an ontologically haunted universe. By that, I mean that the ultimate cause of our being and our very mode of thinking demand that what we are and how we came to be cannot just be dismissed as it happened. There is intelligibility running through our veins, and from that we cannot run. Every deduction of the naturalist can be readily countered from our coming into being to the relationships we experience with others to the moral imperatives in our lives. That is why, may I add, millions, indeed billions in this world will never shrug off the supernatural no matter how high the naturalist raises his volume. Not because those billions are fools, but because plain intuitive certainty tells them that something with such spiritual and physical complexity just cannot come from nothing. You see, in the Genesis account, the question is not whether the garden was there by design or by accident. That was the most reasonable recognition. Rather, doubt was planted as to whether or not God had spoken and given the ground rules for life. The answer from the naturalist is a thunderous no. To accept that God has spoken is to surrender the first principles of naturalism. So the real debate is distracted by mockery and by name-calling. The difference between name-calling and calling one by name is worldviews apart. We see that the difference between a silent world and one in which God has spoken is the dramatic line of division between the theist and the naturalist. In the first garden, God spoke and humanity denied that he had. Humanism was born and man became the source of meaning. Now we come to the second garden. And here a strange twist is added. The question in this setting was not so much whether God had in fact spoken, but whether what he said could be contoured into something other than what he meant. The setting was ideal for distortion because it was not so much a garden as it was a desert. Gardens can seduce one by the beauty of the surroundings, delighting in the aesthetic while denouncing the moral. By contrast, deserts can generate mirages so that what is actually unreal and imaginary looks real. In the first, the deception is that of the will. In the second, the disorientation is that of the mind. The very paradigm is shifted and truth is at the mercy of imagination. Jesus was hungry and physically weak, and the tempter stormed him with a series of taunts. One of those jibes thrown was to jump and see if your father will honor his word. Every temptation was fused with the same challenge. Why don't you do this your own way and prove your autonomy? What then is the twist? In Eden, the question was one of the text. Did God actually speak? Here it is one of context. Change the meaning of the text and you play God. While in the first setting, humanism was born, in the second, religion without truth was born, a form of polytheism, many gods, or pantheism, in which individuality is exalted to divinity. The irony is that though Jesus was divine, he could not lay claim to his power without forfeiting his mission. 
the inability to think in context is so manifest in the moral conflicts that we live with today. Every major moral battle we fight is either because we deny the text or justify the contrary by appealing to a different context. By the change of a word or by justification of some other kind, nothing is essentially good or evil anymore. Something far-reaching comes to birth as a result. Common sense tells us that we cannot live without a moral law. But how does one generate a moral law if God has not spoken? The only answer is to arrange a morality of one's own design that, though mystical and transcendent, is attainable by one's own efforts. This way we appeal to our spiritual bent and at the same time incorporate ourself at the center. If we can be good without God but retain a religiosity, we win both the secular and the sacred. The New Age philosophies came in order to satisfy this demand. What better way to apply an economic theory of supply and demand than to manufacture religion that is in limitless supply and can be tailored to fit one's personal demand? A personalized religion with an impersonal God. That's what it is. This kind of religion by its nature has an immense capacity to reflect the pragmatic, a chameleon's dream. In the desert... The temptation was not to invent a naturalistic explanation as much as it was to reinterpret the revelation by massaging the context. No religions have done more to prove the reality of this temptation than Hinduism and Buddhism. With repeated effort, noted scholars and practitioners have tried to shade the truths of Christianity and make them resemble their own worldviews. Verses such as, The kingdom of God is in you, or I and my father are one, are used to sustain pantheism. Some of the most renowned Hindu philosophers have strained to make this point and tell us there is no difference. Any reading of the text in which these statements in scripture were made shows clearly the illicit use of the text by those who seek to distort them. This reasoning is a violation of both logic and theism. What begins with a subtle departure from the truth by the allurement of self-deification ultimately results in the deification of everyone and everything. Such a world would be destroyed by powers of conflict because every power would claim autonomy. That is why Hinduism's epics are full of war and killing as an integral part of being gods and goddesses. Animal features emerge on the divine, the stories behind them leaving one utterly puzzled. And into the mix of polytheism and pantheism, other divinities are added. Rivers, wind, and fire, the world of God-making had begun. The Christian scriptures are dramatically different. When God sent the plagues upon Egypt in the Old Testament, they were designed to show that he alone was supreme over the objects that they had deified, rivers, planets, creatures, magic, and so on, and that there was no other like him. Nature, humanity, and every other entity or quantity is distinct from God, we cannot try to eliminate their distinction with impunity. From pantheism to the worship of nature, the temptation of the desert is still with us today to have religion without God. Rejecting the text of God in the first garden paved the way for humanism, and rejecting of his context in the second led to polytheism or pantheism, many gods or self-deification. By any standard of measurement, it is in the third garden where the Christian faith offers an answer for which no other system even pretends to find a substitute. Having withstood the test in which he was challenged to go his own way, 
In this garden, Jesus now kneels at the most desolate moment of his mission. It was to accomplish this mission that he resisted the urge to invoke the supernatural as an easy way out. All the gospel writers place him at Gethsemane when the betrayal by Judas took place. Matthew in particular gives us an extensive look at the anguish of Jesus in those moments preceding his arrest. That garden has become synonymous with loneliness, sorrow, pain, and death. Once they understood the purpose and the means of his death, it became the riveting truth of the gospel they preached with unshakable conviction. The Apostle Paul said, We preach Christ crucified, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. He went on to add, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. When the missionary John Patton arrived in the New Hebrides in the mid-1800s, he began translation of the New Testament. First, he had to reduce their language to writing. He worked with his young helper to come up with the vocabulary. He did not know how to illustrate the word believe. Finally, when he leaned completely on a chair in such a way that his whole weight was on it, the concept of trust emerged. John 3.16 now reads in their Bible, For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever throws his whole weight on him will not perish, but have eternal life. Such is the procurement of the cross. A form of Christianity that goes by that name, but loses sight of the cross, is not Christian. A religious person that thinks nature and the cross portend no difference, understands neither. His cross is the hill from which our gardens are addressed. His was a crown of thorns. His voice rings above the sounds of hate and torture and death. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This carries us beyond the text and the context to the contest. Whose way? God's way or ours? The Garden of Gethsemane pointed Jesus to the cross. From the Garden of Gethsemane, which preceded the cross of Calvary, we move now to the final garden. This is how the scriptures describe the closing moments of this part of the story. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. They laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was beside him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying, 
As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus turned to her, Mary. That's John 19, verses 41, 42, and John 20, verses 1 to 16. What a moment that was. A moment that spanned the breadth of the four gardens, from the text in the garden to the context in the desert, from the contest in the Garden of Gethsemane to the contrast, indeed the culmination, in the garden where they laid him. He was the Lord of the universe, yet he called this simple woman by her name. Everything suddenly bloomed with meaning. The story of life was now seen through the eyes of her risen Lord. It is no wonder that she reached out just to touch him. God is personal. God is relational. And God sees in an eternal sense. The victory was that of Jesus over those who would silence him then and for centuries after. He not only spoke, he called them by their names. That is the difference in our world of anger, hate, and rancor. Name-calling is the symptom of our breakdown. How can we fully enter into the wonder and exaltation that must have now pulsated through the very beings of those who he loved and who followed him and whose names he called so tenderly? Only one who has known the bondage and enslavement of sin and the emptiness it brings can fully fathom the liberation of the cross and the glory of the resurrection to hear his voice again. No wonder the world of Christian thought is so adorned with a wealth of music. They are the sounds of finding that there is more than a garden. When Jesus speaks and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he claims what no other did. When he says, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. He speaks as no other does. The Bible says that though God has spoken to us through the prophets and the apostles, his climactic expression is in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. See Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. This Jesus called Mary by name and asked her, Why are you crying? What are you looking for? Author Ken Geyer tells this lovely story. A little girl who lived at the edge of a forest wandered off one day into the woods and thought she would explore all the dark secrets of the forest. Father, she wandered, the denser it became, till she lost her bearings and could not find her way back. As darkness descended, fear gripped her, and all her screams and sobs only wearied her till she fell asleep in the woods. Friends, family, and volunteers combed the area and gave up in the thick of night. Early the next morning, as her father began his search afresh, he suddenly caught a glimpse of his little girl lying on a rock, and calling her by name, ran as fast as he could, she was startled awake and threw her arms out to him. Wrapped in his tight embrace, she repeated over and over, Daddy, 
I found you. Mary discovered the most startling truth of all when she came looking for the body of Jesus. She did not realize that who she had found was the one who had risen and that he had come looking for her. Perhaps if our naturalists would stop looking only for a gardener, they might be surprised at who they would find, or should I say, at who finds them. They might actually hear him call them by name also and might truly understand the gardens and the deserts of this world for the first time. He is not dead. He is alive in the best sense of the term. The celebration has begun. You've been listening to an abridged presentation of Jesus Among Other Gods by Ravi Zacharias, copyright 2000. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.